0: We teach us. Welcome
1: to the We Teach Us Podcast, a space to reimagine our education system. This is episode three, and I'm your facilitator, Ryan Dalton. Let's get started.
0: Do
1: now. All right. Today's do now question is, what is an institutionalized system of domination? Can you uh, clarify that? I don't know, I don't know what that means. Um, um,
2: repeat that one again. What's that question?
3: Doesn't seem positive to me. So um'm you know I'm, I'm a mouth, so that you just messed me up with that word. Uh, so um, some things can be like if you're saying in education, um, when they see certain groups of people or the person not as clean or, or they have a certain look, you automatically assume that they can't achieve as much, and that could be a system of a domination. Uh, <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I really don't know. I think what comes to mind is a prison. How we, um, the majority of the um, prisoners are African American or a minority. And so I think they have, many of them have been wrongly accused of, of different crimes or very minimal. I guess crimes, and they've been—they're in there for a long period of time. But I, I think I would say a a prison who has really wronged our um, our minorities or African Americans.
4: Um, I guess I would say when the structures of a society or an organization or whatever it is are laid out so that certain people are marginalized or have restrictions on their power and their choices that they can have.
0: I really
3: don't know that one, but if you elaborate more on that, please.
0: This Week in the News.
1: All right, sitting here with me this week for This Week in the News is my number one co-teacher, my real life partner, and my wife, Ronnies Dalton. Hey.
2: Hey. How you doing? Good, how are you?
1: Oh, awesome. <laughs> As if we didn't just see each other a minute ago. <laughs> All right, so let's get it started. Uh, my first article is from Spectrum News, New York One. Very localized news here. Okay. Um, the title of the article says, Over 200 New York school districts don't employ teachers of color. Wow. So we're not talking about 200 schools. Right. We're talking about... 200 school districts and districts are made up of multiple schools and there is not one single solitary teacher of color in these 200 school districts in New York State I
2: am not surprised by that because um, let's see from K through 12
1: you grew up there
2: I was born and raised in New York I went to elementary middle school in Queens and I had not one single black teacher wow and I went to Sheepshead Bay High School. <laughs> I don't know if I should be mentioning it. Shout out, shout out to Sheepshead Bay. <laughs> uh, which was in Brooklyn. And ninth through 12th grade, I never had a black teacher. My first black teacher was a black professor in college. Wow. So that does not surprise me. But that's still, it's pretty wild. Yeah. To think that I went through my whole schooling experience, never- looking at somebody that looks like me up in front of the class
1: yeah incredibly wild um it says here more than 200 new york state school districts don't have a single teacher of color according to a draft report on educator diversity from state education department from the state education department um It even is including New York City. So it says teacher diversity across the state rose between 2011 and 2017. And New York City has the highest number of teachers of color at only 42%. So if you think of how diverse New York City is, 42% teachers of color is not that much. Not at all. But at least they do have some. Right. (laughs) Whereas the other 200 districts have none. Oh, God. So that's ridiculous. I don't know what plans the state has, though, to address this, but it needs to be addressed.
2: Oh, they need to address that. Definitely.
1: (laughs) Totally. All right. So what's your first article?
2: Okay. My first article is coming from Life Hacker, and the title is, Should You Opt Your Child Out of Homework?
1: Yes, you should.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This article is encouraging parents to consider if they should opt out of homework for their child.
1: Okay. Is that a possibility? Like, can parents opt out? I mean, I, me as an educator, I don't b- really believe in giving homework. It's a very rare, rare occasion that I do. Um, but as a parent, can you, I mean, if that's one of the grades in the class of your student, can you opt out?
2: Okay. So they're saying in elementary school, there's actually um, a requirement, like a suggested amount of time that students should be doing homework. Which I was not aware of. Are you familiar with this?
1: I know that um, I, I didn't know there's a suggested amount of time per se, but I know for reading. I mean, the only way to get better at certain things is to practice it. So for reading, the only way to for students to really improve on reading is to spend time reading at home. But homework, uh, you know, falls into a different category. Well,
2: they have okay. It says. Ask yourself, does your child's homework seem to help reinforce the concepts they're learning in school while also allowing them plenty of time to play outside or participate in other activities? Is your child struggling in a particular area and benefits from the extra practice? This is it. Does the workload follow the National Education Association's recommendations for the amount of time it takes to complete 10 to 20 minutes per night? in first grade, and an additional 10 minutes per grade level thereafter. I didn't know that that timing, suggestion, or recommendation existed.
1: Uh, I didn't either.
2: But So there's a certain amount of time that's appropriate for homework for each grade level. So they're saying, if it's more than this time that's recommended, if it's not helping your child, if it, if you notice that it's busy work, then you as a parent have the right to have a conversation with your child's teacher to say, hey, this, I think, is a reasonable amount of time and work for my my child to do. And I guess try to come up with some type of uh, compromise with the teacher.
1: Okay. So I guess the article is making it a little more simplistic than what it is. Because we can't just opt out. Like, there's <laughs> right, not a right. form that you fill out and say, <laughs> right. my child is opting out of homework. <laughs> right. Like when Michael Scott declared bankruptcy. <laughs> I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so... I mean, it is good to know, though, that the there has been some, uh, let's say, a time that's been put out there that yeah. is good for kids to be doing. And and I do believe in that. As an educator, I do believe in students spending a certain amount of time outside of the school day thinking about things, practicing things. However, I don't think that that has to be homework, per se.
2: Right. They also say you want to consider the consequences of you deciding your child is not going to do their homework. So. One example they gave is if the whole class getting a prize is contingent upon every single student doing their homework, you know, you so might
1: want to have your child
2: do their homework. Yeah, so it's
1: really getting down to it that this opt out is a totally unofficial thing. They're telling Absolutely. you basically just go rogue. Yes. Tell okay. Yep. So that's that's pretty different. But I, I'm not. I don't disagree with it. Um, I'm actually looking across the room at a book. The Homework Myth by Alfie mm-hmm. Cohen, um, where he's he's completely against homework. Um, and I think for the most part, if I had to stand either for or against homework and I couldn't speak in a nuanced way, I would be against homework. Wow. So there we go. Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to opt our kids out of that. We'll see what the schools do. <laughs> All right. So my second article is from a website called The Conversation. I had never heard of it up until now. Okay. The title is America's right is lobbying against South Africa's sex education syllabus. So conservative America as if it is their business. What? Is <laughs> lobbying against South Africa's sex education syllabus.
2: Okay, so they're inserting their own like this is a completely different country. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, like who asked
1: them? Nobody, but of course they <laughs> are going to try to say something so um this is kind of an interesting one for me specifically because first of all i believe in comprehensive sex education i wish we had it in america i Mm -hmm. wish we were teaching it k through 12 in all of our public schools um but the class in south africa that they're speaking about where this uh sex education will be taught is life orientation right and um it's a class that i taught while i lived in cape town And I taught that class in a sixth, I taught sixth grade life orientation for five years. Um, And it was very enjoyable. And I loved the curriculum. At that time, it had just been introduced, Mm -hmm. K through 12 life orientation to be taught. And it's really good. It's way more comprehensive than our health classes here in America. But um, it deals with all things related to life and sex and sex, um, health and education is a part of that. So the article says... Conservative pro-life advocacy groups with U.S. ties are targeting increasingly inclusive sex education lesson plans being developed by the South African Education Department as a part of life orientation curriculum. The new lesson plans have not been released, but media reports suggest that they include topics such as consent, gender and sexuality diversity, self-image, genital differences and changes, body diversity, and touching oneself for pleasure. According to the Department of Basic Education, the purpose of CSE is to ensure that we help learners build an understanding of concepts, content, values, and attitudes related to sexuality, sexual behavior change, as well as leading safe and healthy lives.
2: That sounds great. It sounds great. And necessary. (laughs) And necessary. I
1: mean, that says it all. So you have these groups that are... They're they're actually, a lot of them are South African groups, but they're backed and funded by conservative America. Okay. Um, Here's a a quote about that. The narrative that sex education is dangerous to children is common among U.S. conservative pro-family, and that's in quote, advocacy groups. The pro-family movement unites the anti-abortion and anti-gay movements that emerged in the U.S. during the 1970s in response to the sexual revolution. The pro-family movement advocates two main messages. The first is that the heterosexual nuclear family is the only natural and natural as in quotes form of kinship. Wow. The second is that the nuclear family is economically productive, whereas others, such as those involved in LGBTQ plus people and non-nuclear families, are social threats and economic burdens. Wow. These messages reinforce intolerance and can even inspire hatred towards LGBTQ people. Gosh. So I mean, let's let's also look at this. So, not only is it none of anybody in America's business what South Correct. Africa is deciding to teach their exactly. children. Let's start there, <laughs> right? But of all the people in the world to be deciding who should be teaching what about sex education, America is not the one. So, not at all here in America. <laughs> young people between the ages fifteen to twenty-four account for fifty percent all new STDs. Wow, we have the highest teen std rate in the industrialized world wow higher than any other nation one in four teens in america contract a sexually transmitted disease every year one in four wow one in four so then if we move over to talking about teen pregnancy in america the data shows that pregnant teens ages 15 to 19 57 out of a thousand teens are pregnant wow teen girls and of those 57 out of a thousand, 15 result in abortions, 34 in births and 8 in miscarriage. This is compared to countries like the Netherlands who have 14 to a thousand Wow 14 out of a thousand and Switzerland who have eight out of a thousand. Wow. So we have 57 out of a thousand. So of all the countries in the world to be telling people oh yeah about how to <laughs> lead or conduct sexual ed- sexual education, America is the last one that should be doing it, leading the yeah. entire world in teen pregnancies and STDs, teen STD rates and adult STD rates for that matter.
2: Looks like we could benefit from some of these comprehensive sex education Hello. <laughs> classes. Wow.
1: So, yeah, that's just ridiculous. But maybe we could speak to South Africa and actually get the curriculum over here. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> All right. What's your uh, second article?
2: Okay, my second article is from Chalkbeat.org. Okay. And the title says, Here's what we know and don't know about NYC's plan to create and overhaul 40 schools. Okay, so here's a quote from the article. What we know and what do we not know? (laughs) Here's a quote from the article. In the week since Mayor Bill de Blasio announced a $31 million competition to open or overhaul 40 schools, officials launched a whirlwind tour across the city to get the word out and convince educators, community organizations, and students to apply.
1: (laughs) The word even got to us. It did. One of our (laughs) former colleagues from New York actually contacted us to say, hey, there's this thing, let's start a new school.
2: Yes, (laughs) which is incredible. I mean, they realized that School, as we know it, is not really effective, and they're reaching out to anybody to submit proposals for school. So they will either open up new schools or go in and make some changes to existing schools. Awesome. Okay. Things that we know, the deadline, Okay, <laughs> which is November 12th, there will be another deadline later on. So we still have time to submit our proposal.
1: November 12th.
2: (laughs) Is the first deadline. Okay. Okay. That's the first thing we know. Second thing we know, pretty much anybody can apply. Okay. Uh, Third thing, winning teams are eligible for grants to implement their ideas. Now, it looks like you could win up to $500,000 to either launch a new school or overhaul an existing one. It is a one-time gift, though. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) the next thing we know is that every borough will be represented.
1: Okay. And from what I understand, they're really pushing people to think outside the box. Yes. They don't want standard. They don't want something that already exists. They're saying what we're doing now is not working. Exactly. And we want something innovative.
2: Exactly. So what we don't know is what kind of school designs the education department is looking for which is exactly what you said, the entire point. They don't want to give a box because they want people to just come up with whatever they think is going to help our situation. Um, we also don't know what kind of flexibility is really possible. This deals with testing. Yep. Um, how much can we really uh, veer from what is required currently?
1: Well, just on that, though, that, that was kind of one of my first questions to our friend who contacted us. I was like, uh, can we do alternate assessment? That's that's a big deal. I don't want standardized tests. Can we veer away from standards as much as possible? Right. <laughs> because even what is determined that kids should be learning, I don't necessarily feel like they should. Right. Um, so, yeah. those are still questions. We don't know.
2: But they do say here they're willing to fight. If you come up with a proposal that is amazing and with this, with regard to this particular thing about testing, it says they're willing to fight to try to maybe convince people that we don't really need that. So that's good.
1: Um, I hope that, I hope that they do find innovative people to do it. I hope that it, it works. And I hope that it could be maybe a model of what, education can look like if we don't just keep going back to the old model over and over and over again
0: yeah so, i agree
1: uh, i'm hopeful for it me too okay great all right all right well that was this week in the news thank you again for joining me as usual
2: thank you for having me <laughs>
1: it is uh, my pleasure. i do None of us asked to be here, here on Earth, that is. We weren't able to choose who we would be, where we would be born, when we would be born, or the circumstances we would be surrounded by upon birth. But we were all born, thrust into a world that would immediately determine certain life trajectories, varying in ranges and extremities, merely based on who we are where and when we were born, and other identifying factors that play into social constructs that were established long before we were even a glimmer in someone's eyes. We were all born into a world with a rich and terrible history, a world with pre-existing ideas, beliefs, perspectives, structures, systems, hierarchies, and institutions, many of which are incredibly old, well-established, and thoroughly maintained. We might not have started any of this, but from the time we were born, we became innocent participants of the machine, Well, at least we were innocent or maybe just more unknowing at birth. This world is full of ideas and beliefs. And as we know, ideas and beliefs can be powerful, wonderful, and beautiful. As we also know, ideas and beliefs can be ignorant, terrible, and harmful. Some of those bad ideas and warped beliefs are fairly inconsequential, whilst others are extremely toxic. Horrible ideas and beliefs like, oh, I don't know, one race is superior to another, or women should be subordinate to men, or heterosexuality is the norm and anything else is a perverted deviation. And these terrible ideas and beliefs become more dangerous when they shift and grow and are built upon, evolving into ideologies, impacting and informing individuals and groups of people's philosophies, principles, ideals, and values, developing a web of terrible ideas and beliefs around the original terrible ones, informing the indoctrinated people's thoughts, words, and actions. However, even ideologies built on terrible ideas don't necessarily have a greater societal impact. If they aren't backed by a larger system of power, the influence and related harm can only go so far and will most likely remain with an individual and or small group of people. A good example of this might be a cult leader and his followers. In America, like in many places around the world, we see harmful ideologies based on people's innate identities. Things like race, class, gender, nationality, sexual preference, religion, and ability. Some examples of these ideologies are Imperialism The ideology of extending a country's rule over foreign nations, often by military force or by gaining political and economic control of other areas. White supremacy. The belief that white people are superior to those of all other races, especially the black race, and should therefore dominate society. Patriarchy. The belief that men should hold power and women should be largely excluded from it. Those of course are just a few examples. Ideologies based in terrible ideas and beliefs can be dangerous, but they reach entirely new levels of potential danger, power, and devastation when large numbers of people become indoctrinated with them, and those people begin to base entire systems, structures, and institutions around them, especially and specifically when this institutionalization is done with the intention of domination uplifting and benefiting one group of people while simultaneously disenfranchising and oppressing another. I think I understood this on the most basic of levels from a fairly young age. And even though my critical analysis of our society developed and grew over the years, I didn't really develop the language to adequately speak to it until I read the writing of author, feminist, and activist, Bell Hooks. It was in her writing that I first read the term institutionalized systems of domination. Institutionalized. The process of establishing and embedding a conception within an organization, social system, or society as a whole. Systems, a group of interacting, interrelated entities that form a unified whole working together as parts of a mechanism. Of, expressing the relationship between a part and a whole. Domination, the exercise of control or influence over someone or something. Though throughout my life I had witnessed the way abhorrent ideologies impact the larger system, and I could even see how specific policies, legislation, and societal discrimination were influenced by them, reading the term institutionalized systems of domination made it click in a way that it had not before. To take it further, I loved Bell Hook's unflinching approach at calling out these specific systems when she would write or speak, naming them in her famed phrase, imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. She would speak about imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchal America, or imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchal values, and in outright naming them in the way she did, she left little to be misunderstood or misconstrued. These ideologies are not just problematic beliefs that are held by extremists that sit in the outskirts of our society, or your racist uncle you see every holiday these ideologies have been institutionalized infiltrating every system in our society weaponized with the purpose of control power and domination these institutionalized systems of domination are what america as we know it was founded on they are found in every nook cranny and crevice of this country and their immoral influence knows no bounds they influence our policies laws and legislation they influence our criminal justice system they influence our schools, our textbooks, our curriculum, our student codes of conduct. They influence our healthcare, our housing, social services, our access to resources. They influence our employment, our wages, our benefits. They influence our media, television, radio, and social media. They influence certain groups of people's ability or inability to merely walk down the street and go about day-to-day business with or without being harassed. These ideologies were purposefully institutionalized with the objective of domination. They were intentionally established, and they will not just go away without a fight. They must be dismantled with equal to greater levels of intentionality. The only problem is, as these institutionalized systems of domination operate on a systemic level, they continue to operate as ideologies on an individual level, and many of those who are indoctrinated by these ideologies, most especially those who benefit from them, are in denial that they even exist. So as toxic cisgender heteronormative imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchal values are validated and reinforced through our systems, media and dominant culture, those who hold those values, whether consciously or not, feel validated in their existence, whilst others are oppressed by them and even at multiple intersections of oppression. Terrible ideas and beliefs inform terrible ideologies, and those terrible ideologies help to establish entire systems, and we see a back-and-forth motion as the ideologies perpetuate, solidify, validate, and inform the system. And in turn, the system perpetuates, solidifies, validates, and informs the ideologies. And these institutionalized systems of domination do not merely work in isolation, they are intertwined, interlocked, and work together to create what is known as intersectional oppression, and for those who benefit from them, intersectional privilege. Just like in every system in our country, we see how multiple institutionalized systems of domination are active in our school system, disenfranchising and oppressing certain populations of our school communities while simultaneously benefiting others. For instance, because of nationalist imperialism and settler colonialism, we see grave injustice for indigenous students. Though every single one of our schools literally sits on land that was violently claimed from indigenous groups, indigenous students continue to be systemically discriminated against. Indigenous practices, traditions, and ways of teaching are not valued by our schools, whilst our system simultaneously gaslights indigenous people with whitewashing revisionist history and the erasure of theirs. According to the National Indian Education Association, 22% of Indigenous Americans over the age of 25 have not graduated high school. This is compared to the less than 5% dropout rate for white students and less than 10% for black students. Speaking of black students, due to white supremacy, black students are disproportionately disciplined, suspended, and expelled from schools compared to their white peers. A federal report found that though black students only accounted for 15.5% of all public school students in the country, they represented about 39% of students suspended from schools during the 2013-2014 school year, an over-representation of about 23 percentage points. Black students are also unnecessarily and disproportionately being placed in special education. In 2016, a federal report found that 12% of black children across the nation receive services at school for disabilities ranging from emotional disturbances to physical disabilities to intellectual impairment. This was compared to only 8.5% of white children who receive those services, though they make up 48.4% of the country's school population. And those are merely a few examples of how merely two institutionalized systems of domination are negatively impacting American students. And that is truly only the tip of the iceberg. Our schools and school communities are not only negatively impacted by the violence of these oppressive systems, our schooling system continues to be one of the main spaces these ideologies are fostered, indoctrinated, and perpetuated. Whether through a historical history told through an imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal lens, or through teacher bias, or through discriminatory discipline codes, or through the many other ways they are reinforced in our schools, these institutionalized systems of domination are being established, maintained, and perpetuated in the minds of our children through both explicit and implicit messages and actions. Those students and educators who benefit from them are given undue privilege and become emboldened with a warped sense of entitlement and superiority. Those students and educators who are oppressed by them are subjected to daily overt and covert disenfranchisement, violence, and terror enacted by these oppressive systems. As educators, I believe it is our role to educate beyond our curriculum and develop practices and pedagogy that lend themselves to education as a practice of freedom. I do not believe there is a such thing as being neutral when it comes to oppressive systems we are either attempting to actively dismantle them or we are participants in their perpetuation. Bell Hooks wrote that once educators challenge the way institutionalized systems of domination are active in our classrooms and broader education system, we can begin to teach from a standpoint aimed at liberating the minds of our students rather than indoctrinating them. And though liberated minds are not the end result, those liberated minds can be the force behind the revolution we need to dismantle the archaic, oppressive, institutionalized systems of domination. We have to be aware, we have to be willing, and we have to actively dismantle these systems. We do. This episode's guest is a third-generation educator committed to the love, lives, and liberation of Black people, Dr. Charles H.F. Davis III. He is an education professor at the University of Southern California's Rossier School of Education and co-leads the USC Race and Equity Center. He has committed his life and career to education, justice, equity, and liberation. All right, Charles, thank you so much for joining me on We Teach Us podcast. Um, It's a pleasure to have you here with me.
4: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it.
1: Awesome. So let's just jump right into it. Um, so we're speaking about institutionalized systems of domination and kind of how they appear in the education system and in school communities and in the classroom and negatively impact some students and then actually benefit other students and teachers and community members. My, my first question for you is, if you were going to explain institutionalized systems of domination to someone who's completely unfamiliar with the term, how would you explain it to them?
4: Uh, wow, that's a very good question. Um, you're testing my, my pedagogical skills with this one, uh, <laughs> right? Like being in academia, it's like, you just get used to using jargon that everybody supposedly understands. Right. Um, But I think part of it is just breaking down like what already is sort of like a complex thing. um, Right. And so when we think about what we mean by institutionalization, essentially, it's just like an established practice or set of customs, um, usually that are reflected in some part of society. So there's, you know, it's been normalized to some extent. This is just what we do. Um, From a system standpoint, we're looking at the ways that interconnected parts kind of compose a broader mechanism, um, and then of course, domination to thinking about control and power over in a particular kind of way. So for me, it's thinking of like those sort of individually, um, and saying, okay, well, what are some of the, you know, established practices and customs that are composed by interrelated parts that ultimately exert some force or domination over, in this case, people? Um, and so when we think about what those things may look like, um, I think we're really easy to identify like institutionalized systems, at least in U.S. society. You can think about like housing, education, Mass incarceration, um, that these are institutionalized systems of how we do society, but often we're not always thinking about how power is a very big component of that,
0: Mm. even though
4: these systems are very different, but in many ways power is functioning almost always already within each of these systems in terms of, you know, who has access to housing, or when we think about homeownership, who has access to the means and like getting loans and loans they can afford to have housing, um, you know, in education, sort of the same thing of how do we think about access to schooling and equitable schooling that perhaps is also based on property tax values, right? Which then starts to get into the interconnected piece, which I know we're going to talk about um, a bit. So I, I think it's really just thinking of things as we know them and understanding that power is functioning within them that, you know, relegates certain people uh, to be out of bounds for opportunity.
1: You know, a lot of my uh, sort of, let's say, not not necessarily real life experience, but my academic Uh, introduction to institutionalized systems of domination came from the writing of bell hooks and she's you know she kind of coined the the whole mouthful of imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and i like it because it just names it all it puts it all out there um so when we're talking about, you know, institutionalized systems of domination, this is what we're speaking of and how these sort of ideas have become institutionalized because mm. we know they start as either ideas or biases or just these terrible ideologies. Um, and what we see is their ideas, that become institutionalized. And then our institutions then sort of reinforce the ideas. And there's this back and forth that happens. Um, Can you speak to how the schools play a role in this?
4: Yeah, I mean, so like one of the things that was really enlightened to me um, when I was in graduate school was this idea that schools are social institutions and they are things that help us, you know, sort of learn how society works. And so the sort of fundamental question um, in the program was really wrestling with this notion of a school and society symbiotic relationship. And that is to say, you know, to what extent does society produce school? but at the same time and perhaps simultaneously the school also produced society. And mm-hmm. so as we think about this, um, you know, from a schooling context we could actually look at schools as the space primarily in which stratification happens, right. How we rank and order and sort people in society. Um, and so from an institutional standpoint um, at, you know, at best schools represent sort of the, the best and worst parts of how society functions. Right. And so where you think in terms of the bell hook sense of um these institutionalized systems, um, and we're thinking about something like the way that capitalism functions in school, we've all seen in recent news, right, like these states or school districts who are like, oh, students cannot have access to, like, things that all the other students can because they have school lunch debt, even though right. we, should, you know, really live in a society that you have access to basic meals and schools should be able to provide that really free free of cost, Um and so, you know, that's in one way where we see that schools sort of not only function in a capitalist sort of way where they put profits over people, mm-hmm. right? But that um, that, in large part, the way that people are thinking about capitalism also tends to trickle into other aspects of how schooling functions across not just the K twelve space, but also in higher education, right? We can think about the NCAA sports. Um, intercollegiate athletics at the division one level and how much money is generated in that particular space despite players largely being disenfranchised from, from benefiting or profiting in any type of way. Um, you know, and that's sort of like maybe the easiest sort of location of that. But, um, you know, we talked a bit earlier about how, you know, property taxes in many ways are what determines the ability for schools to have resources. Mm. And so in in a society where homeownership isn't readily accessible, one can only imagine in an environment in which those who are living are not actually able to be homeowners and therefore can't pay property taxes, that their schools are now tied up within this other form of the capitalist system, by the way, of assets and and tax bases, um, where, you know, if you just live in a bad neighborhood, you go to a bad school, Mm. Um, unless you try to institutionalize some sort of, you know, system that allows for those kids to go to other schools. But then that's a very small amount. And they're usually made out to be these sort of like racialized exceptions rather than the rule. Um, and we're not taking account for, like, again, what is the system's role in having put them in that situation in the first place and then wanting to extract at their will and pleasure who they can make exceptions of, as if to say that this is about individualism and not about a larger social or systemic structure. Um, and so, again, we see these, you know, in a tons of ways in, in schools. And probably the last thing I'll say is, you know, we think about mass incarceration, right? We are very, I think, much familiar at this point with the notion of what the school to prison pipeline is, but even thinking about how early in age we are criminalizing black and brown youth, that really puts them on that pathway, not just in terms of the discipline and the way we think about carceral punishment, even in schooling context, but also how that has social, social, cycle, uh, social psychological implications for how folks are seeing themselves. Right. Yeah. And so if you're like at an early age only taught to see yourself as a criminal or as a, as violent, then inevitably you're going to internalize and reproduce that. Right. Um, and so I think that goes to the point of how like these ideologies are feeding the system and the system is reinforcing it, even when you don't benefit from it directly. Right. This like internalized notion right. of being different or less than, um, wanting to respond in some way to that, then they reinforce that stereotype. Um, And I think the important thing to note about the way these ideologies and systems work is that they are primarily functioning for their own benefit, right? Um, So they are, and even we are, you know, there are, you know, folks of color who engage in many of the same like white supremacist practices that affect students of color. Um, And, you know, they end up being like very much a part of that system as well doing what I call white folks' work. Um, Mm. Not recognizing that the things that perhaps they might individually be against or, you know, even in academia, people who write about these things in these colorful ways often engage in the same types of practices, because we're not challenging just sort of like the ideological foundation of how we think about basic stuff like teaching and learning, for example, um, that, you know, as you can sort of attest to as someone in the classroom, right, it's like for some teachers a lack of pedagogical skill ends up creating more issues in terms of classroom management than it does say anything about whether students can learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then we kind of like resort to these things about just how we think that, you know, even like ageism within the classroom of how like as a younger person, the way you should respond and quote unquote respect adults, even if it's not, you know, a mutual experience. Um, So yeah, I mean, there's tons of ways that schools are a part of that, um, that process of what, you know, we call the academic space, social reproduction, if you will. um, And that it really just, as much as it can be possible as a liberatory space and a, and a space that can be helpful and useful as it is for, for many folks at the same time, it can be a place that's debilitating um, and something that, you know, continues just to do what society already does outside of the classroom space.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, you gave some great examples of uh, like individual ways that these individual uh, sort of structures are working to oppress and disenfranchise students and um, But we also know that these institutionalized systems of domination don't only work in isolation, that they interact with each other, they feed off of each other. Um, like what Kimberly Crenshaw spoke about. They have intersections. Can you speak to that um, in a classroom or school community, how we might see how these various ideologies and institutionalized ideologies feed off of each other and play into each other?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, as we sort of are alluding to and talking about Crenshaw's intersectionality, one of the sort of um, things with that term, right, is like it kind of gets thrown around a lot. You know, now everything seems to be appearing intersectional. And not just, you know, whether we're doing credit to or honoring the fact that Kimberly Crenshaw's the, the genesis of that, you know, alongside with Patricia o. Collins early work, but in fact, it lacks often a systemic um, assessment or analysis, and we think about it in, like, the identity context, and even right. more so that when we talk about intersectionality, which, you know, I think is up for debate as, you know, as far as intellectually goes, perhaps, but I find it really troubling when people want to engage in intersectional critique and then race is the thing that's like not a part of it, even though it's very central and the thing around which many of the other systems um, are pivoting in the model. Exactly. Right. And so when I think about that, what that means in schools is like, OK, when we're talking to this, about the school to prison pipeline and this sort of mass incarceration, you know, a lot of the conversation has um, been centered around sort of men of color within this particular space. Right. And how like, you know, black boys in particular are like overly criminalized. And you know, seen to be as threats and then treated as such. And you know, from the point of being suspended from school, and now as a result of the suspension, they're you know doing something that maybe otherwise they wouldn't be doing if they were in school, and then get picked up by the police, and now they're in juvenile detention, and then that cycle sort of repeats itself. Um, that becomes the predominant narrative, right? And so part of what Kimberly Crenshaw is, is talking about is by using intersectionality, we realize that this is not fundamentally just a race issue, but more importantly by looking through an intersectional frame, it doesn't allow for the stories of, say, black girls who are pushed out and criminalized in school as well to be theoretically erased from how we understand the school-to-prison pipeline. And so part of that is not saying that we should look at whether black boys and black girls are perhaps suspended and or expelled at the same rate, right? And we should, but we also have to look at black girls in relation to their white counterparts or to other racial groups to understand that there's also a disparity there that may even be more pronounced than that between black boys and white boys.
0: Right.
1: And it, and you use the term pushed out. And there's like uh, an entire book that Monique Morris wrote on that very topic. So, so Like the film the, the,
4: comes out and like I'm super gassed about it. I'm trying to figure out how to get it in my classroom. Yep. Super, super important. <laughs> so, right? But like that's part of like what we don't recognize often when we think it's like, oh, it's just a race thing or it's just a gender thing um, when it's always those things working in concert with one another.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, what we see often, too, is I I like that you brought up how intersectionality is just kind of thrown around and people don't really take that uh, critical race theory into it. Because that to me, it's almost I've seen it in when I taught some postgrad classes in Brooklyn, um, Mm -hmm. some students who, let's say a gay white male felt that they. They they were against us speaking about racism and white supremacy so much in class and trying to dismantle it because they were like, well, I've been oppressed, too. I've I've been through this. And Mm -hmm. it's not I think they in in speaking about other forms of oppression, they feel like theirs is invalidated when it's not. But but yeah, we to to look at it critically. And as you said, like, take it to the broader system and have. Mm -hmm you know, I, I don't know how you put it, but I think you said the uh, systemic analysis of it.
4: Right, right. Because, I mean, like, we're not in competition, right? Like, that's not the point of the exercise. It's exactly. the most oppressed. We're not engaged trying to engage in the Oppression Olympics. Um, but that, you know, it's, it's always getting a sense that, you know, the way I sort of explain it to my students is that we have to exist in a world where we understand fundamentally that each of us can experience harm, but also do harm. And some of those experiences and actions in which we engage are a result of some of these like ideologies, some of which are internalized. Um, it's also about that the systems are reinforcing, you know, things that ultimately are about the disenfranchisement and disproportionate, um, you know, treatment of some versus others. And so it's always a question of thinking, you know, when we look at the as- systemic analysis at the highest level, then yes, as a um, white gay male, one could experience oppression and marginalization as an example, but it's not because they're white, right? It's right. because of one being gay and existing in this heteronormative society. And then you could add maybe another layer if that person grew up like low income or working class where classism and homophobia and heterosexism are intersecting. But again, you know, from a race standpoint, that's a central component in which one would probably could argue that it wouldn't be appropriate to use that particular analysis to describe the experiences of, you know, working class or low income white gay men.
1: Right. And and that's what we've also seen, I think, uh, specifically with white people and specifically with poor white people, we've seen. We've seen people struggle to understand the idea of privilege and mm-hmm. they only relate it to, to privilege in a monetary sense. And right. especially someone who grew up without a lot of money, uh, a white person, they say, well, I also had hardships. I also grew up. And they attribute that to being not privileged when I think they're totally misunderstanding the idea that we're talking about privilege that's connected to a broader system, like you said, that reinforces either the... um benefits that come from that system or the disenfranchisement
4: yeah absolutely um you know i I think as um people are trying to understand a lot of these things that they're challenged by the sort of cognitive dissonance right or the left or confusion or um competing feelings that they have about being able to occupy both spaces simultaneously and it kind of points to what um Dr. Reverend Jamie Washington talks about in, in, in his work of this notion that many of us are easily and perhaps even more readily available to act out of the pain of our marginalization without acknowledging sort of the arrogance of our power and privilege.
0: Mm. And I think
4: this is like very indicative of how, you know, you know there's a lot of conversation, um, you know, about and between black men and women on Twitter, for example, where both you and I are very active. And, you know, there are so many black men who feel like they have to compete for air, space, and time to talk about what we experience as brothers, but then don't want to lend the same space and time to not only, you know, understand what black women are experiencing, but even be able to situate ourselves within a broader collective who's a part of this problem, right? Because we think of this only as an individual um interpersonal exercise not realizing that you know in many ways we're bystanders to a lot of the things that take place and happen um simply because we can't recognize that we're both again be able to be subjugated in one way and then also subjugate other people um, but it's really important and schools reinforce this in terms of like how we think about teaching and learning and the way classrooms are constructed um right because again from a modeled individualism which is very much a part of the i'll say american pedagogical project um is to think that individually is the goal when a lot of us come from communities in which like collective sense of selves are very, very, you know, big and schools actually try to pull that away, right? Did you do your own work, yep. right? And kind of like, don't think about group work or collective exercises, partly, you know, another conversation about how society is functioning now, but that it's about you as an individual and perhaps maybe the, you know, other side of this where it's not as pronounced, but, um, you know, the, when you think about teams, it's only really in the context of sport that these things perhaps come up in this way, right? But that's still also to a very particular benefit. And even within sport it's saying, you know, we make it really clear about who's going to have an opportunity to go to the league, even though we're willing to package and sell the dream to everybody who wants to apply. Right. Exactly. Um, And so I think that, you know, as we think about who can be challenged by within an educational context, to think about who they are, how they relate to the rest of the people in the world and how the system has structured their personhood in relation to those people. Um, It's really important to think about the role schools play in doing and also undoing many of those things when we can like easily interrupt and intervene for behaviors that start very early on in one's development um, to ensure that those things are not reinforced um, or, you know, sort of passively being accepted in the way that we both gender and racialize children in school.
1: Okay. So I guess this is a perfect segue into this because while we're talking about undoing, um, we know that these uh, various institutional system of domination, they benefit some whilst oppressing or disenfranchising others. Um, mm-hmm. In the school community and in the system and in the classroom setting, how are teachers and students who benefit from them? How are they impacted by these? How does it sort of manifest in these settings
4: oh uh, wow i mean it can be a lot of ways right so i think that you know as people who work in education context um you know we're very familiar that the k-12 space is predominated by i think like 82 percent white practitioners and we're seeing a lot of articles of recent that are like oh you know we want more men of color to be engaged in the, in the teaching practice for which there are tons of reasons why that doesn't happen and then also we know that all students benefit from having diverse levels of instruction. But um, when I think about, you know, those uh, from whom benefit, so if we think about the 82% number, most of those are also white women, right? And when we think about the lens of, like, white feminism perhaps is, like, this lacks a certain level of criticality or Mm -hmm. or, or a significant level of criticality, even when we think about the later scholarship um, that really pushes and advances some of these ideas like intersectionality, then I think we have to wonder about, you know, for – white women who are engaged in teaching practice, for them to look at perhaps how they engage in discipline in their classroom, right, and sort of um, perhaps subconsciously even given the messaging they receive not only in their own educational upbringing, things that are reinforced by media, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, looking at the disciplinary track record in which perhaps many of the students whom they have engaged in disciplinary action um, you know, recommended for suspension or detention or expulsion, like any of these things, and this is really across the practitioner ladder, all of which is mostly white as well. Um, that those folks end up being uh, predominantly black or brown, and so part right. of the impact of that, right, for that practitioner um, of not having recognized that practice, mostly coming to understanding that practice, um, is sort of the their own fragility can be revealed, right, in that because they have yet to wrestle with how their very identity. In a racialized sense, perhaps a gendered sense as well, um, having not had to wrestle of where that is positioned in relation to the Black and Brown students that many of them teach, that they even in their best intentions of wanting to quote unquote see all children as human beings, right? And we know that that's you know a, a limited way of understanding this too, um, is that in so doing that that they um, are not only doing things that disproportionately affect these students, but they're also reinforcing negative messages and biases that they are continuing to go unchecked. And sometimes the data can help reveal that. But then it's not just what's happening in the schools, but can that also be built out in terms of the way that they relate to people outside of school in context? Because these schools happen in locations. And in many of these locations, especially in like urban schools, right, a lot of the teachers don't even live in the neighborhood. right. And so part of it is that the messaging they're even engaging with and are seeing and not resisting as they go to and from school um, or the assumptions they make about where these kids come from and sort of the deficit-laden perspectives of the value of community in those spaces, um, that this now is part of their worldview of an entire set of folks, an entire set of people. And that doesn't mean aren't some very, like, legitimate and statistical realities that folks are facing, right, that the material conditions, um, you know, are, are not problem, uh, problematic in some sort of way. But then what does it mean to go through the world as a human being and seeing people, at every level, at every age, at every of developmental trajectory and making these assumptions about them instead of interrogating how, you know, you actually exist in relation to them. Um, that creates, you know, a set of sort of negative perceptions, biases, and stereotypes that are almost insurmountable if they're not directly addressed. Um, and so that's more like, I think, an abstract kind of way of thinking about it. I would say perhaps a, a more concrete way, um, for example, is that it, it often misapplies, um, a lens in which there needs to be focused. And part of what I mean by that, when we think about things like school shootings, right. And we think about who the perpetrators of school shootings tend to be or mass shootings generally, right. They're white boys and men. And so if you're so preoccupied as a white practitioner, what your black and brown kids are doing by way of like discipline, needing to be punished, et cetera. And you're missing signals perhaps from a white student, right. Who's exhibiting certain behaviors that would be otherwise interpreted by a professional as, as something of concern, right. Right. You're so worried about who you deemed or let society deem as criminal and not the person actually going to perpetrate the crime. And then you might miss some of those signals by having these biases, thinking that only certain kids are bad and other their kids are just misunderstood.
1: Right. Obviously, we see this play out in society then with... Um, I, I recently saw... It was... I forget where it happened, but it was a, a black police officer who had showed up to the scene mm-hmm. to... He, he was the police officer that showed up to the scene and uh, another white police officer shot him. Yep. Because he perceived him as a threat. And it's just... We see it starting like how you're describing in schools and it ends up, the schools operate as these little factories that sort of pump out these ideas and then push them out into the broader societal level.
4: Yeah, so a lot of these are secondhand experiences even, right? Like for that example, you know, that particular cop also had some educational upbringing, at which point racism became a learned behavior, right? And maybe not explicitly, but certainly implicitly of how they even saw like who got in trouble in their school, right? Right. Um, And the kids that he was told not to hang out with. And so there's something about that and, like, you know, a broader conversation about how whiteness itself is constructed, that there is always this assumption that a black body in a pervasively white space does not belong, Mm -hmm. right? And And not even just that it doesn't belong, that I, as an individual white person, have a responsibility, right, to ensure that they're what we call, like, the absolute right to exclude, right, that, like, I can get them out the paint, as we would say. Um, by however means messenger. If that person has a gun, then that tends to be the case, right? Because if you have a gun, you are more likely to use it just by virtue of having it. And so when you look at that, you know, from a policing standpoint, that, like, that police officer went to school. That person received messages about who we should be considered um, as criminals, right? Um, And perhaps nothing ever interrupted that moment until maybe this particular experience, which, you know, perhaps if it is a learnable or teaching moment and a learning outcome happens, like, there's still a person who's no longer here based right. on that negligence and that ignorance. Um, and so this is the cost of not disrupting, you know, where people are learning this. And we you know that kids are learning stuff as early as the age of three to be able to recognize racial difference, but then, you know, not just beyond recognizing it, being able to establish a pattern of meaning-making it something that happens over time, much of which can happen not just in an individual school, but also between schools, right? We've seen some stories uh, recently about how there's racial animus between particular schools who play each other, you know, in a particular sport, right? Yeah. Or um, you know, any number of these things that happen in communities um based on how schools are very hyper segregated. Right. So you're even learning between schools. Um and we and we see this in like part part of the college space too of, you know, um what we think about the other because this is partly that the way that we construct it and, and the schooling space is just understanding the sort of me versus we and then the us versus them sort of dynamics. Right. And there's so many ways that, that gets reinforced that is, you know, secondhand experience It may not have to happen directly, but just through observation, right, and then you're in your own space making sense of it, um, or things that people say, you know, and, you, know, you, you know, our father, and so you can appreciate, you know, things that our kids sort of, like, repeat back um, that you don't even know that they're listening, right? So what does that then mean about the way that we engage in, like, racialization or racist behaviors? Um, or what are the implications of that further down the road when we haven't interrupted with intention um, the way that we develop these biases.
1: Yeah, so that that sort of brings me to a question I wanted to ask later, but I want to go ahead and go to it now since we're kind of in this mode. You know, some people would say it's not the teacher's responsibility to name and call out and dismantle these systems of oppression and various wrongs in the classroom. Um, what would you say to people who say that? It's not the teacher's role to do that.
4: Well, if it's not the teacher's, who's is it? Is my question, oh, right? Yeah. When we think about this amount of time that young people spend in school, it is perhaps the single most place in which they spend the bulk of their time developmentally between ages, you know, three and we'll say twenty-two to twenty-four.
1: Right. I mean, sorry to interrupt, but like yeah, I can yeah, say yeah. as a parent, you know, i I send my child to uh, right now. It's just preschool, but you know, I send both kids, and they're there from little before eight in the morning until I pick them up a little after three. And then Mm -hmm. their waking hours they spend with me are much less than the amount of time they spend at that school.
4: Exactly. Right. So it's like, well, then where else would the responsibility fall? Um, And to be sure, like if school is supposed to be, you know, what we've idealized it to be. And in in some places, perhaps that's still the case. If schools are supposed to be these places in which teaching and learning can can occur, you know, in a fairly uninterrupted way, um, why would we not want this to happen there, right? Like when we think about this notion of like, oh, the children are the future, then like where are we training and developing the future? And what is the future that we all want to live in? Um, And so that's sort of my question is like, okay, well, fine. Maybe you say teachers shouldn't do this, but then who is responsible? Because then we've we've already agreed that it should be done. We're just now saying who should do it. Um, And what I find is that most people are saying they don't want it to be done at all because like they're saying in part, school should not be a political place, even though inherently school is political. Right. Everything that we do about how we organize school, how we fund schools, how we hire for schools are very much political. And the personal is political in so much as like our diverse student populations, you know, come in with a set of like histories and cultural experiences, um, and things that aren't always valued in school, which is on a human level, the first and fundamental thing school should be doing, right? It should be a space, as Kia Salema would describe as that gives you good love, right? That shows that you're valued, that you're cared about. Um, And part of, you know, even just from an ethic of caring is disruptive to the way a lot of these systems work. And so, no, maybe you're not sitting down, you know, your fifth grade class to talk specifically about institutionalized systems of domination. But, you know, you should be able to interrupt, you know, practices that are happening in your classroom or in your school space that are reinforcing some of these negative messages, right? Um, And, you know, think about responding in ways that are acts of radical healing when things like this take place. Um, because again, you know, unlike higher education practice today, although there's an argument to be made for this, you know, that as you mentioned, like as parents, we're entrusting our kids to, you know, an institution to function as what we would say is in local parentis, right? Um, and so there's a responsibility there that my child in going here to get an education is not going to experience violence or harm, right? right? There's an expectation for that. So, so again, it's like, I feel like that is fundamentally the role. Of these folks is to intercede because we do it in other ways, and that's kind of my thing, right? Like we interrupt certain behaviors, but when it comes to maybe things like race, it's like, oh, we don't want to like interject ourselves, and in that usually because you're not skilled enough to navigate the space. But right. in other things that we see happen, like if a fight broke out in the middle of a hallway in between periods, somebody be like, oh, I don't think it's the teacher's role to like you know separate up the kids to make sure that nothing bad really happens. <laughs> like, no, they're like you're going to get in there and you're going to separate them, try to you know exactly. escalate, right? Try to mediate the situation out so we don't engage in some other form of carceral punishment. Or maybe there's somebody that's over, you know, the the VP for discipline, you know, is the person who has to deal with that. But still, like, nobody would say that otherwise. So when we see forms of racial violence, right, or gender violence that are happening, would we not have the same obligation to young people?
1: I I, I fully think that we should and that we do. Um, And unfortunately, especially in this political climate that we find ourselves in now, I think one of the issues is um, people who there are people who are now emboldened and sort of proudly walking in the opposite of that and unfortunately some of those people are educators some of those people are principals and then of course there are students who hold those same ideas so it's just uh i want to look for solutions to how how can we in in sort of this climate is there do you think we'll ever get to a point where we can just agree like white supremacy and the way that it exists in our society is bad Uh, misogyny patriarchy all of this it's bad you know is do you think we'll be able to come to this because like you said sometimes it might come to just people feeling a lack of ability to speak to these things and it's out of that insecurity that they don't um but then there are just people who just boldly reinforce these ideas so how do we deal with that on a sort of school and system level
4: yeah i mean that's that's a tough set of things to consider right like I think in an ideal version of the world, yes, sure, right? But we live in the world as it is and not as we hope it's going to be. And so I think that, you know, regardless of maybe the individual sort of aspects, until we really contend with and are honest with and have a reckoning about our desire for power in a very particular way, right? A construction of power in which domination is ultimately the goal, control is ultimately the goal, rather than one in which we have the right to self-determination and can be self-actualized and we feel that anybody else's ability to do that poses a threat to our ability to do that, then it's going to be impossible for us to sort of get past this. And so, again, this sort of moves or articulates the need for us to move from individual to collective, which is yeah. partly, you know, this whole contention of, like, whether socialism is bad. And it's like, well, I mean, if you read at all, right, conceptually, yeah. there's, it's hard to be disagreed with. But, you know, capitalism has sort of, um, you know, hijacked the sort of ways of knowing that construct an idea about socialism as something exactly. inherently negative, right? And so I think that that's going to be the hardest sell is getting people to understand that, you know, just because I have, doesn't mean that you have less than. Um, and that in fact, we all deserve, you know, basic types of things in terms of, you know, access to housing, um, job opportunities and workforce development, quality education, food. Um, and so I don't know, you know, if, if that's a thing that we'll get to, or not, And I think part of the volatility of the moment is that someone is speaking to, you know, the very clear and well-articulated and documented myths about superiority, racially, gendered, you know, sexual orientation-wise, um, in ways that are speaking to a population who has only heard its own echo chamber for so long that any moment in which the uh, dissent has crept in has again revealed that fragility in the fact that they don't know who they fundamentally are because who they are is only predicated on the subjugation of other people. Right. And that's, like, some deep and, like, hard work that needs to be done, and more Man. importantly, I think, beyond the individual of who's doing that, because there are plenty of individual exceptions, right? Um, like, you know, you're making an active effort specifically to be, like, an anti-racist white person, which is fucking dope. <laughs> but then it's like, all right, what about, like, the larger collective self? And, like, although you are certainly not in this camp, like, there's also tons of other white folks who are, like, unwilling to have conversations with other white folks about racism because they're content that they themselves feel like they're, doing, they're anti-racist or probably more so non-racist. Right? right. that they're just not a thing. It's the same thing with men. Right. It's like, oh, I want to be, you know, known as like the male feminist and like, you know, support women's march. And it's like, but you're not going to talk to like brothers at the barbershop when like all these misogynistic and patriarchal things are coming up and right. actually do that work in the community in which you are also privileged. And so I think that's it too of people being willing to take risks associated with being outspoken in ways that they do for again other issues that are uh, you know, perhaps important to them at the time. But not for these larger like social and macro level issues. And I think that's a real deal breakers when people are unwilling to have conversations in the community in which they find themselves to also be privileged because of what it would mean for interrupted the way they relate to those people.
1: Yeah. Cause at, at uh, bottom line, it's violence. This, what we're talking about is violence. And I, I like that you brought up the, the point on the fight. Like there's not many people who would just stand by and watch students, you know, fight and not intervene in some type of way. Um, but these these systems these ideologies are enact violence actual physical violence but also emotional you know they're violent um so yeah i mean i know i posed the sort of impossible question to you um like how can you wave a magic wand and fix all this but yeah let's let's say the the people the educators out here who are, here who are uh sort of committed to critical pedagogy cr- committed to the idea of education as a practice of freedom committed to dismantling these things what are but maybe they don't really know how uh, specific ways that they could and practical ways they could do that in the classroom what are sort of practical ways and I know you can't name every one but maybe some examples of practical ways um, educators could begin to dismantle these systems in their classrooms
4: so I think First, it's about identification and understanding how and in what ways these systems are operating in the classroom, intentional or unintentional, right? And so, one way is looking at your own data, right? Um, Part of that can be, you know, when you are um, grading papers, for example, is there a disparity in terms of outcome, right? Are there certain students who, you know, routinely do worse than do other students on certain performance metrics in your classroom? And by looking at your data in that way and engaging in sort of a a practice like as practitioner inquiry, right, you're able to even illuminate how perhaps, again, unintentionally, um, something like sexism might be operating if you're a male social studies teacher and all of your male students seem to be doing well, but your female students do not seem to be doing so well, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because when we think about equity, it often gets confused as equality, that they're the same thing. And the fundamental difference is that when we think about equality, we should be thinking about inputs, right? That and this is probably why it falls apart as like um, sort of a goal is that inequality is about giving everyone the same thing, despite the fact that by doing so, everyone can achieve the same outcome, right? And this is like a fundamental fallacy of the way that the society is constructed, but also how schools are constructed. It's like, well, everyone gets the same instruction. Right. like, well, everybody doesn't need the same instruction,
0: right? Exactly. We don't all need
4: the same types of intervention. And so when we're thinking about equity, we have to say, all right, well, let me look at the outcomes and the measures that are important in my classroom and see if there's, some level of parity in which all students are actually achieving more or less the same types of outcomes. Um, and so then you're able to identify, like, in which areas you need to have an intervention. Um, and you'll have to ultimately figure out, you know, decide what that may look like. But I think one, you know, easy feedback mechanism is, like, talking and engaging with your students and having them give you feedback on, like, your pedagogy right? And they don't uh, use those particular words, but like, yeah. it's so weird that it's like, we'll go to like all these professional developments as other teachers, we'll exchange <laughs> a bunch of ideas about best practices, and like, all of our students are both like, both of y'all are trash, so I don't know why you're talking about how good <laughs> exactly, practices. But we won't just ask them, right? And part of it's that, that adultism, as if like, you know, we know what we're doing, because we've been to college, and, you know, we spend hours planning these lessons, and there's like, yo, it's just not hitting, bro, like, I don't know what you want me to tell you. Uh, <laughs> and actually enlist students as co-conspirators almost in the educational process, right? You can do this at different levels in different ways, but I think engaging with students and asking them in some ways like, what do they want, right? How do they want to be engaged and what ways could this you know, idea or instruction be more um, engaging for them, you know, having perhaps students who are perhaps more engaged them than other students also being willing to help you understand and see how those things work. Um, but I think it also goes into a conversation about how we evaluate teachers or how like you know peer observations happen and sort of the high stakesness of the way that we're observing and engaging with teachers that they don't have room for mistakes um but yeah i think so looking at the data for one talking to students um for two to see what can happen and then i think the professional practice part um one of the things that howard stevenson talked about he's a um, professor at penn's graduate school of education but he wrote um, a book in particular around like the idea of racial literacy and racial proficiency and so when we Uh think about racism For example, and I think this would apply to sexism and to other uh, systemic oppressions that operate in these interpersonal ways, is that we get so wrapped up in the conversation about moral character, right? Which is how, like, calling someone a racist seems to be worse than the racist thing that they did. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Um, And it's saying, well, let's move away from a character-based analysis or assessment of a person, and let's talk about competency, right? Uh, Surely, uh, if you have a certain competency, then you don't make certain missteps, at least as frequently. And when you do, you know what to do to address them with that particular person, right? And so I think that's the challenge when, you know, if you're an educator and you're not going through this continuing education moment and want to even practice beyond, like, the certification purposes where you realize, like, oh, there is this actual issue in which black girls are being pushed out of school, right? So if I don't even know that that's a thing, I might not even know to look for that in my school or in my classroom. And so part of it's, like, remediating that racial literacy to think that, like, oh, girls just don't get in trouble as much as boys until we start looking at race within the context of, like, girls and, you know, the various punishment systems in our schools. And so I think we have to commit to an exercise in which we are perpetual students of practice and wow. of theory, um, and that's inside and outside of formal education spaces, right? Being a teacher in and of itself is one of the most difficult jobs in the world. So the idea of even being able to, like, lesson plan, grade, you know, work with students, design curriculum. Oh, have time for some leisurely reading, much less if you're also like a parent and a partner and all these other competing um, things that you have. But we also have to sort of weigh the consequences of not doing that work, right? And so I think whatever folks can do to continue to improve what they know and work with people who perhaps know a little bit more to understand um, these things is going to be really, really important because the other thing is although we may have learned potentially about race or about sexism, um, or something in a graduate program, which in most cases we don't because we're really bad at preparing teachers in these programs too, um, that, that even if one learned about those things, that these things are often, like, changing and how they manifest. And so you don't get to learn about it one time back in graduate school and then never have to worry about it again, um, or that you can address, you know, what needs to be in terms of an intervention in the same way you would have done it 10 years ago um, because right. these things are constantly changing. So you have to be in, in like, uh, you know, a relationship with the knowledge base, with the practice base, and really be committed to learning from folks um, and, and teaching yourself in some ways about how to, to do this better. And then we also have to hold school leaders accountable um, for, you know, investing in teachers to get this type of work, right? If diversity, equity, inclusion are all the buzzwords right now. It's like, well, what does your school look like in terms of representation for one? But then two, what types of folks are in your school and how are you committing to co- increasing their competencies in those areas as opposed to just making it like a thing that we care about as a school now? And nobody's actually teaching me how to do like culturally sustaining practices.
1: Yeah, that's great. And it even kind of makes me wish that this was a mandatory part of teacher training that mm-hmm. this sort of uh, critical lens would be a part just as important as lesson planning, as classroom management and all these things. Cause it all actually is interconnected anyways. Are you able to speak to uh, in a school community and a classroom setting Uh, how language specifically is used to perpetuate these uh, systems of oppression and kind of maintain and uphold them? Um, Language that teachers and students use, how they can perpetuate these ideas?
4: Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways that language plays itself out um, in terms of like the words that we choose and like when we choose to use them. Um, I think we can take like the most extreme example of, you know, again, that students are coming into this space with their own lived experiences, their own histories. Um, And so when I think about like where people acquire language, right, that it's not something that is developed in school, but it's acquired elsewhere. Um, And sort of the associations we make with words that, you know, there's that story about the, was it the, was it a counselor or like a school resource officer or some, something and some white kids called him the N word, but then he like had to leave or something.
1: Right. Yep. That's exactly what happened.
4: So it's like, well, what what happens in that moment is not just obviously the inherent violence in the word itself being used by white folks against black folks historically and now. Right. But then like what unfolded as a result of that then also ascribes meaning to not just the word, but who gets to say it and with what power. Right. Right. And so there's all these ways that language becomes both a beginning and even an end in some cases of how we make sense of our relationships in the world and how we're located in it. And so. And I think about other language, of terms of like what we, what attributes that we ascribe to um, boys and girls in schooling contexts, right, and even gender nonconforming youth in schooling contexts, in ways that signal to those students how they should value the personhood of the person to their left or to their right. Right. And you know, we think about like the adjectives that we use to describe certain students, right, and we know that that is gender um, inherently, um, or the things on which we decide to focus, right. We could very easily. Um, I always do this sort of exercise in my education and social change course with undergraduates, and I try to get a stock of, like, how many, and I'm also, like, a very, you know, very private, very white, you know, quote-unquote elite, although it's hugely questionable right now, right, institution, and I'm just like, just by show of hands, how many of you are in, the, in some version of a gifted and talented program? And almost all the hands raise up, which is wow. not surprising, right, given that, you know, there's this sort of pedigree upon which institutions are building, right, like, to get into a good – Elementary school, you got to get into like the top pre-K, right? To get into a shot at like a top college prep high school, you got to go to the right middle school. So, when I think about that, and in this case, it's um, mostly students of color, um, I often ask them, ask them, "Okay, so that's fine, but then how did that make you feel as a student of color in probably a predominantly white context to be one of few in that space, even though you were made out to be gifted? And then what did that signal to you?" about who you were and who everybody else who looks like you were, right? Mm. And part of it is that in the language of exceptionalism, right, that you deserve and you have earned and you and you and you and you, not only, you know, in theory, could help someone think of themselves in a better light, but then it also says something about the people who look like them that are not there. And so all that language, even if it's supposed to be affirming and positive is only being, um, sent to an individual person, and it's not being reflective of how everyone else in the group is. It's like, oh, you're so much better than these other people who didn't make it. Wow, here. wow. Right, and I th- and I think that's like a very subtle but like insidious way that when we try to do these exceptions rather than rules, that it again it creates a different level of internalization where you start thinking about people in that way, like yeah, you're just not trying hard enough, or you're failing that it's your fault, um, and not thinking that even then that was an opportunity. I think about this a lot in the context of like busing in the city of like, you know, the kids that they end up being able to get from Brooklyn and from like other boroughs, black and brown kids in particular, and like they'll be able to get them and bust them to like collegiate, right? Or one of these other like top um college prep schools. And then I think about the fact that in many cases they're not necessarily boarding schools. So it's like, yeah, you can bust these kids to that place, but then they ultimately return back to like where they're from. And then how are they interpreting like sort of their access in a way that, you know, the school is going to say, oh, we got these kids from Brownsville and now they're going to Harvard, right? And what are you saying about Brownsville and what are you saying about Harvard and what are you saying about these kids that are different than these other kids who are also there and how am I interpreting that, like, well, I'm from the same place you're from and I made it and I did this and I did that and you don't actually equip people going to, you know, Jamie Washington's point again, with understanding how opportunity in some ways is masking a certain form of, liberalism and liberal white supremacy right yeah. um and, and i think that's like a deeper maybe level uh, of analysis of thinking about it but like language is all a part of that in terms of the way we think about these buzzwords in education right like access choice opportunity yep. et cetera, et cetera. like all of them are very much laden in, in you know the very belt hook sense of the word with you know capitalist patriarchal white supremacist underbellies um of even how we construct the notion of something like merit right um, yeah and I think that that all of that plays into like how we talk about kids, how we talk about these systems, how we talk about who has the right to be here, you know who's deserving of you know these otherwise very um, limited amounts of opportunity, um which is you know a whole another like, class dynamic about scarcity, et cetera, et cetera but um but yeah, man, language is like super important um and I think about that a lot about the words we choose and and perhaps like a you know glaring spot where this is ever apparent now for folks that might be readily available is even like the conversation about pronouns Mm. right um and so you know we know more and more that you know younger people are finding ways to be affirmed in how they um, experience the world and how they perform and engage in performance of their gender um and choose to represent themselves um and are called to represent themselves in certain ways and we have all of this pushback for people who just don't want to change an institutionalized way that language has operated, right? Right. Even if if someone's like, no, these are my pronouns. And then, like, people are trying to argue with you about (laughs) what – and it's like, wait, so I don't have autonomy and the right to do what I need to do for me because you are just uncomfortable with being able to just change the words that you use, right, because you're just used to it. Um, And I think that's something that, you know, a lot of people are wrestling with now, um, in terms of the practice.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because, uh, I had a little retreat at the beginning of this school year that we, we went on as a school and, uh, we had a speaker come and he was talking about, uh, a, a good thing to start off the year with is asking your class your students their preferred pronouns um and i was like that's awesome and i was very surprised to see educators around me who were opposed to that idea who were like no what why would we ask them that what and i was like wait a minute what is going on but it's it's just completely bizarre and as you said some people are just so stuck in these ideas that have are are connected to these bigger systems of oppression that have just been pounded in us from the time we were young um and it's, it's sad to see them play out
4: yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like we're just so committed to our way of life, regardless of what it does to other people. Um, or in, you know, our effort, desire to change, we want to recenter how we feel in this moment, despite, you know, wanting to center um, the experiences that people have always felt as a result of, you know, our own ignorance or negligence in the process. Um, and again, it's that individualism, that autonomy, um, and that notion that we have a greater sense of duty to ourselves than we do to others. Um, that I think, you know, language is but one way or one artifact that we can sort of view that through. Um, and that's something that, you know, again, starts in schools, right? We learn how to label and make specific things and use words um, in certain kinds of ways. Um, and I think we learn that at a, at a early age of how we interact with people when we just disagree, right? Yeah. And so even the way we frame disagreement and mediation in that process means that language can be weaponized um, intentionally and, and often unintentionally because we just don't understand how language has been used in um, ways to oppress and marginalize others if we haven't experienced that marginalization and oppression ourselves.
1: Well, and even when ideas of agreeing to disagree, if if the disagreement is tied up in humanity, a person's humanity, mm-hmm. and then I, I, that's not just a disagreement, that's something more. Um, and so, you know, you'll find these, especially white educators, for instance, who will be like, well, we'll just agree to disagree about this racism thing. <laughs> well, no, we we can't just agree to disagree about that. It is it is racist it is wrong um that's not something you could just disagree with
4: well that's the thing right like there's certain people who get to reduce like the material realities of others to a you know a differing of opinion right and like that's just like a crazy notion to me that you know and this is part of like that free speech debate that's like got all kinds of problems with it um right or like even the way we think about the you know what what do they call it in academia? Like the democratic exchange of ideas or something like really ridiculous. Um, and it's like, no, we can't have a sort of explicit conversation, you know, about whether you think that I'm a human being and have a right to be here or, you know, have a right to be treated as such. Um, that's not a conversation about opinion. Right. Because at the end of the day, even if we differ in opinion, your opinion becomes policy. Your opinion becomes practice. Mine does not. Right. Mine, mine is that that's critique. Right. You know, or if we're lucky beyond that, it's reform. But it certainly isn't driving the conversation. Um, and I think that that is, you know, a very, very big part. We misunderstand that school, if it is the function, a place in which we can engage in the democratic debate of ideas, that we also have to question the political uh, motivations of many of the ideas that have been put forward. And this is like at the central part of even Max Kendi's work as he thinks about what it means to, have ideology be attached to policy and practice that produces inequitable outcomes. And that being our measure of racism, rather than just interpersonal assessments of people's intentions. Right. Um right. Because the idea is that the root of that, and then we show it codified in the way the policy is made and then the way that it's implemented, because even when we have reformation policy, and you see this in no better place than in the schooling context, right. We're trying to like redress and reform the things that are not going wrong. That, if we're not explicit in what we're trying to do and who we're trying to affect, inevitably, the marginalization still gets perpetuated, right? We say we right. want to institute a policy for all students, and it's like, well, you, you really want to do this for particular groups of black and brown kids, but you don't want to say that because you don't want white people to get upset. Exactly. Right? And then by doing that, now white folks are saying, well, do I have access, even though this group is like explicitly dedicated to supporting these groups of students, and people are saying, well, we're not saying that you can't come. Right. But the question yeah. is, like, well, why do you need to be there?
0: Yeah, exactly.
4: Right. Like you had everything else. Why do you need Black History Month to also now be the place where we're doing programming that we only get to do perhaps in this space based on how our school district is set up? Right. right? Um, and that's just like so ludicrous that this is how power works. Right. And that power is if it's determined in part by our ability to exclude others, then that's how, the only way we know how to operationalize it. And so, when we can't do that, then that becomes the point of contention for those that are in those privileged positions.
1: Man, well, I, I could literally sit and talk to you about this for hours and hours. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, do you do you have any final thoughts? You do you like want to get off your chest that we you feel like we didn't cover or any any else you would you would like to add to the conversation?
4: Um, I mean, I th- I think I just want to return to your appeal or question of like. Whether people can kind of change. Um, I think it is a noble and ambitious goal for us to have because I think we have to dream radically about what is possible in school, right? Um, and so the only thing I kind of want to leave out on is that, you know, one, despite the various challenges that we are experiencing, a part of perhaps even perpetuated time, that we have to know that a better world is possible. Mm. Um, that we have to really commit to the fundamental exercise of what Robin Kelly calls it's freedom dreaming and, and imagining that somewhere in advance of nowhere, right? That we have to sort of put as our North star, the furthest possibility of what a free world looks like, right? Not a free world for us as individuals and that I individually can be free, but that all of us can be free. We can have the right to self-determination. We can be who it is that we want to be uh, without respect to other things put in place to ensure that that doesn't happen. And I think it's important to dream in that particular way because no one raises themselves to low expectations. And this is exactly what we do in our schools, right? And so if we can, you know, actually set the bar as far as it possibly can go, any time that we fall short, we'll still be making measurable progress because we set it so far in advance. If our goals are, you know, easily achieved, right, then they're not ambitious enough. Mm, um, yeah. And I think we have to think of schools as a place in which radical imagination can take root, not just for ourselves as practitioners, but for, like, the generations that we're training and developing, Instead of, a, a, you know, raising them in some ways, which is why standards and high stakes testing in some areas restrict what people can engage as teachers teachers and learners, um, is that we want them to be better than we were and to have a version of possibility that we never thought could happen, right? And, and people have sort of, you know, perverted, you know, the election of Barack Obama in that particular kind of way, which is not, you know, all completely negative um, for sure, but It's like we need new modes of possibility, many of which are sitting in the seats in our classrooms right now, and that's what we have to cultivate. The job of an educator is not to simply deposit information, if at all, into students, right, but it's actually to bring out of them what's already there, to nurture, to develop, and that has to be wildly imaginable because if it isn't, we're setting ourselves up for failure, right? And the future will look either exactly the same as it does now or even more bleak than our past, and I think that's just a really critically important part as like, an overarching frame, like, what are you doing to stimulate you know, radical imagination and freedom dreams for folks that are in your classrooms? How do they see themselves in ways they've never seen themselves before? And in turn, how is as a result of that pedagogical practice, might we see ourselves in some other version that we never knew was possible either?
1: That's that's beautiful. And I mean, a great place to end on. So thank you for that. And it also, even though all of this is overwhelming and even as you might put it, bleak, you know, that that helps end on a bit of a hopeful note that we can, we are creative and we are imaginative and we need to bring that into our classrooms and hope for better and and hope for change with each other and uh, with our kids and, you know, with our peers and colleagues. Absolutely. So I'm sure after this conversation, people are going to want to know how they can either get involved in something you're involved with or follow you. Um, what are, do you, you want to share your various links or how can people get in touch with you or follow you?
4: Um, so you can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at H F Davis. Um, you can go to HF com. It's my, uh, website. I'm going to, to do some redevelopment, but you can grab the new book that's up there. Um, and you know, just reach out to me um, if you're in the Los Angeles area doing this work. Uh, definitely love to connect um and if not you know get involved with what's happening locally whatever the issue may be there's already people doing amazing work on that but that doesn't mean they don't need support and new members so check them out awesome
1: well uh this this conversation was so amazing like i said i wish we could have talked for hours and hours um but i definitely hope to have you back uh i really appreciate you for all the work you do you know i don't get to see you in person but i see you online all the time and um, I know that you're a strong voice for justice, a strong voice for what's right. And um, yeah, you as an educator, you, you make us look good out there too. So I really appreciate that.
4: Uh, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me on and I'll come back anytime.
1: All right. Awesome.
0: You do.
3: Hi, uh, my name is Deja. I'm an educator calling in from Newark, New Jersey. Um, and I just wanted to share uh, one or two things that I do to dismantle institutionalized systems of domination in my classroom and school community. Um, the first thing I do is treat my kids with compassion. You know, I show them grace and help them understand that making mistakes is okay. I make mistakes too as an adult. Learning how to say sorry to them when you know I know that I've done something wrong. Um, another thing that I do is refuse to participate in oppressive classroom routines and procedures that are set by the school. Um, Things like silent lunch, um, why am I assigning a child silent lunch, or work lunch, or community service around the school for their behavior, you know, things like that. Um, And then also being able to hold my coworkers accountable for the harmful practices that they use. You know, there have been times where I've seen coworkers, you know, yoke a child up, you know, because they've gotten to their wits end with the child's behavior when all they could have done was just maybe pull the kids aside and ask a question to really understand, like, what was troubling the child to act that way. So I think, you know, having patience is a start. Really seeing our children as people and not as, oh, you're the child, I'm the adult. And then also before taking a disciplinary action or a measure, pause it for a second so, like, really, like, assess yourself because if you're angry and you're, you know, livid, you're going to approach the situation in the same way. So, really just taking a moment, taking a deep breath, and really thinking about, like, okay, so how do I handle this situation between the child? And, you know, it's really dismantling that me versus you, like, feeling that usually lives in classrooms where children are expected to just receive information, whereas you know, I'm the teacher, I'm the authoritative figure in the classroom. You know, it's my job to give you information. It's your job to remember what I'm telling you. Um, Because your classroom should feel like a community. You know, it should feel like a home away from home for your students. It should feel like a safe place where we can have discussions in the classroom, where we can have a community feeling where if you're learning something, I want to be a part of your learning. I don't want to be like, The person that's like dishing out the knowledge, like I want to be a part of your learning experience, and I want you as the students to also be a part of my learning experiences. Is it your homework?
1: For more information or to get in contact with Charles Davis, go to his website at hfdavis.com or find him on Twitter at HFDavis. There you can find the book, Student Activism, Politics, and Campus Climate and Higher Education by him and Dimitri L. Morgan. I highly recommend the following books that are related to this episode's topic. Teaching Community, a Pedagogy of Hope by Bell Hooks, and Teaching to Transgress, Education as the Practice of Freedom by Bell Hooks. For links to these, the articles from this week in the news segment, and other resources, visit the extended learning page at weteachuspodcast.com. The ticket. Unfortunately, we live in a society where terrible ideas and beliefs have morphed into atrocious ideologies, and those horrible ideologies have been institutionalized with the intentions of domination, infiltrating all of our systems and every single aspect of our lives. We might not have set these oppressive institutionalized systems of domination in motion, but we can all work to dismantle them. Our schools and school systems are not only negatively impacted by these institutionalized systems of domination, they have also become greenhouses that further support the growth of the toxic ideologies behind these oppressive systems. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. When it comes to oppressive systems, there is no such thing as neutrality. We either benefit from them or are disenfranchised by them. And as educators, we cannot afford to be neutral. We must fight back. We have to partake in daily, active, intentional work to dismantle these systems. As Charles said, we have to dream radically about what is possible in our schools. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of We Teach Us. Visit our website at weteachuspodcast.com. Follow and interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at weteachus. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash We Teach Us podcast and call in and leave a voicemail to give your input for the You Do segment at 615 348 7303. Lastly, subscribe to rate and review We Teach Us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on and spread the word. We, we Teach Us. us.